Hello. 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 And welcome to Pioneer's Post podcast. Social enterprise stories and conversations from across the world. There are lots of ways one might define a good leader, and many figures one could readily select as examples. But at Pioneer's Post, we're interested in a specific kind of leader. We're looking for those leaders who are both trying to make a difference and doing business differently. These are the leaders treading that fine line between money and mission for the benefit of people and planet. So welcome to the Good Leaders podcast with me, Tim West, founding editor of PioneersPost.com. Hello to my guest today, Tom Rippin, the founder and CEO of On Purpose. Tom, a very warm welcome to you. Hi, Tim. It's very good to be here and thanks a lot for having me. Good to see you. So we're going to get straight into it. Um, Tom, tell me what, where and who is On Purpose? Sure. At On Purpose, uh, we develop people who are going to help transform the economy. So we are a social enterprise that runs a one-year leadership program uh, in London, Paris and Berlin currently. Um, and we do that with a team of a core team of about 18 to 20 people across those three cities. Okay. And when did you set it up? Why did you set it up? Sure. The first program started in January 2010, so a little while ago now. And uh, there, were, there were a few different rationales behind that. Um, one was certainly a kind of a real belief in the power of talent and developing people and providing people with amazing development opportunities and, and what can happen if you do that. Mm. Uh, the second was a real belief in the need for kind of finding different uh, ways of thinking about how organizations run and by implication how the, how the economy as a whole actually works. Mm -hmm. uh, and especially in those days, you know, the kind of social enterprise movement was very much talked about uh, and we took a lot of inspiration from that and hence we are a social enterprise ourselves. Mm. Um, and thirdly, I'd say, you know, that there was this inspiration around of examples of social enterprises, of cooperatives, of, you know, just organizations who were doing things differently. And it felt that if we could kind of bring all those different things together, amazing people, give them experience, development, training, uh, bring them together with those types of organizations who are genuinely doing things differently, then yeah, amazing things might be able to happen. And so you tend to take people, don't you, who are from maybe from the corporate world, maybe from the charity world, but they are, they're having some kind of career change, maybe some kind of career crisis. Um, and... You give them some training at the same time as as injecting them into two different organisations during the course of a year. So, I mean, what what sort of people are they, and how how does that work? Yeah, sure. So, they they are people, as you say, from from all kinds of walks of professional life. Uh, although we do probably have a, a slight uh, a slight greater tendency to hire people from the private sector. Uh, but in reality, you know, some come from the private sector, some from the social enterprise world, even some from charities, some from the public sector. They'd have on average, you know, anything from six to eight years uh, professional work experience so far. They've probably been quite good at whatever it is they've been doing and they've been quite successful. But they've kind of come to this point where they realize, actually, what I'm doing now is not what I want to be doing in 10 years time. And they've realized you know, sometimes people describe it as they've 
on their career kind of almost been on a set of train tracks. You know, maybe they've been doing what what's been expected of them so far. They've been doing what's been seen as um, prestigious or, or difficult, uh, and they've suddenly got to a place where they where they're realizing maybe I ought to think about what I really want to do or what I think is meaningful. Um, mm. And I think the year with us gives them an opportunity to really engage quite deeply in that in that question. Uh, not just to think about it, but also to experiment with different things. So as you say, you know, we, we, it's a 12-month program. People are put into two different organizations for six months each where they work you know, four and a half days a week. The other half day a week, we uh, provide them with a, a lot of training um, on a very wide range of topics. Uh, and there's also quite a lot of uh, one-to-one support. So each person has both an executive coach and a mentor who they work with uh, right. during the year as well. And that combined uh, all together with the kind of power of that group that you're going through this experience with. There's a lot of peer learning involved. There's right, a lot yes. of kind of, you know, deep relationships formed as well. That adds up actually all to what is ultimately for most people quite a, quite a transformative experience. Yeah, I should say actually our managing editor, Anna Patton, is a, uh, an on-purpose uh, do you call them alumni, alumnuses, alumni? Sorry, Alum- uh, al- yeah. alumni, or we, alumni. we call them fellow. We call them fellows, fellows when, once, they, yeah. once they've been through the program. Yeah, yeah. So let, let's look at the early days then of of um, on purpose. Um, and I'm just interested in looking at the the business really, how this as a social business too. So how much revenue and profit did you make? What impact did you actually make in your first year? Mm. Yeah, good question. And in the first year, uh, we, we were tiny. Uh, and there's maybe a, a, um, a short story uh, that hangs by that one, which is that, uh, you know, I had written a, a business plan, you know, like a good ex-management consultant that I was, you know, 100 page of PowerPoint or something, and been to talk to lots of people with the idea of, you know, I would raise a few hundred thousand pounds of grant funding before even starting this thing. And, and that would kind of get me off to a flying start. And we'd have a first year with however many people in it. Uh, and uh, Whilst in many ways I had a lot of good feedback on what I was going to do and people were interested, um, there were some sceptics as well. But um, one thing I certainly found out that was that um, uh, certainly grant funders don't tend to give you money for an idea. You know, you have to show some mm. traction. You have to you have to start at something. So long story short, I thought, well, okay, I'm, I, I, I can afford to try and make this happen for a year you know I was in a fortunate and privileged position that I was able not to pay myself for a year and I said okay I'm gonna I'm gonna make it work for one year even if that's just a very small program and so we ran it in the first year with just five people we had five pioneers who took a big punt frankly you know I think Mm. were very courageous um, to be the first people through the program we found five organizations who would host them and amongst whom they then rotated halfway through and um, and that's how we got off the ground. So the impact was, of course, uh, the 12 months of those five people's work in that program. But much more importantly, actually, the careers of those five people since, you know, they've now been out and about for, for what is it now, 11, 12 years uh, and, and what they what they've been doing since. Um, uh, financially, literally, uh, you know, we didn't uh, in order to get those first organizations on board, we said to them, all you have to do is cover the salaries of the people on the program we won't charge you a fee on top of that um, yeah. so we didn't make any traded income um, I did raise um, uh, during that year I think it was 28,000 pounds of grant funding mm. um, uh, but you know because we didn't have any salary costs actually the uh, the, the costs were kind of minimal and, and we beg borrowed and steeled wherever we could and, and lots of people were very generous 
to us, for example, in terms of spaces that we could use to hold our Friday afternoon training sessions in and so on. Yeah. I should probably also say that the other part of the business model, uh, whilst we're on people's generosity, is that uh, a lot of the training uh, that is delivered on Friday afternoons is delivered by third parties. So we have people from the social enterprise world, but also the business world and, and so on and so forth, experts these days increasing also kind of from the complexity and systems change world come in and they very generously give their time for free, um, right. as well as the mentors and coaches who work with us actually also do so on a pro bono basis. Right. Excellent. And how long did it take then before you knew you were onto something? Did, mm. in, the, in that first year, did, did, did the magic happen? Yeah, I think I think I knew I was on to something, or I was convinced I was on to something probably even before it started, because I had sure, this kind of yeah. steady trickle of people coming to ask me. I, I guess I'd kind of gone through a similar career transition myself right, a, few, yeah. a couple of years earlier, and I had a steady trickle of people coming to me saying, I want to do this, how do I do this, how did you do it? Uh, and when I then went out starting to talk to people about this idea of this program, I had a lot of interest. So, So that... I was convinced I was onto that from the start. Um, mm. The difficult bit was convincing uh, organisations at the beginning to take part, although that has actually become increasingly easy over time as, as we've proven our, our value and our worth. Mm. Um, and uh, the really difficult thing, which in some ways we never cracked as much as we wanted, and maybe that's not a bad thing in hindsight, is that you know even after that first year of kind of proof of concept, I still then wasn't able to go out and raise the, you know, several hundred thousand pounds of grant funding that I thought would really kind of rock us up that, that scale right. uh, ladder. So, um, you know, some point during year one, we actually had to take a decision that uh, we were going to grow this organically, essentially. You know, we yeah. weren't going to yeah. raise another quarter of a million or whatever, or, or a, quarter, a quarter of a million at all. Um, and... Uh, but that it was actually possible to to grow this slowly, and so you know we went from five in the first year to I think eleven in the next cohort, uh, then eighteen. Then we switched to kind of having two programs a year, which is what we do now on a regular basis, uh, and then now kind of you know a, a program for us is kind of eighteen to twenty people uh, normally, and you know then after a few years uh, we replicated ourselves. We went to Paris first in two thousand fifteen, and in two thousand sixteen yeah. to to Berlin as well. I mean, that kind of organic growth is perhaps not something that as a consultant, a previously a consultant, you were maybe used to because I think consultants, you know, it's all about getting kind of venture capital in and, and, um, and you know, growing, growing quickly and growing big, isn't it, I guess. So was that was that a did, did you have a, to change your mindset in order to to do that? Or were you comfortable with the idea of organic growth? No, I, I think I did. It's, it's a good question. Um, I think I assume just because everyone around about you talks like this that you have to scale, you have to grow and so on. Yeah. Um, one thing that I really remember, though, um, when we essentially made the decision to kind of grow more organically was quite a big sense of relief uh, because mm. I've been spending a lot of time going around talking to foundations um, where I could find them, individuals as well, yeah. trying to persuade them that this was a good idea and that they should fund me. Uh, and for various reasons, you know, I'm sure all very good reasons, I was finding that quite difficult. And, I, you know, I'd raised a small amount, as I said, but not nowhere near what I might have expected. Um, but 
and, and for me that was quite frustrating uh, and I was quite frustrated by having to kind of try and persuade what I saw as third parties who were not who didn't really have any skin in the game mm. whereas I knew that I could persuade people to come and do the program and I knew that I could persuade organizations to host these people during the program uh, and by kind of saying well actually we're going to grow it organically the number of people I had to persuade of something reduced um, yeah. and I only had to persuade the people who were genuinely actually going to be part of it yeah. uh, and I didn't have to try and go out there and persuade a bunch of people who weren't actually really all that directly involved and who therefore I think were ultimately more difficult to try and persuade sure. and that I remember actually just being a kind of whole uh, strangely maybe a kind of quite a palpable sense of, of relief of that of the need to persuade people who were not really involved of what I of the of the worth of what I was doing, mm. of that just falling away and saying, okay, well, we just won't bother with that anymore. I've got another question related to this, the way you started up as well, which is really to do with your constitution. So when when people start something for good, you know, um, right now I guess people might think of us a, a social enterprise model of some kind, but people used to think, right, I'll start a charity. Um, I, how are you constituted? Because you, you're talking a lot about about going to foundations. Did you, I can't remember if you're uh, if you're charitable as well and whether you, you set up in that way initially. Um, so so we, are, we are a company limited by guarantee. Right. Uh, we modelled our memorandum and articles of understanding on the Charity Commission's kind of model memorandums. Yeah. So we have a, a non-profit clause written into our constitution. Yeah. Uh, and we did actually at one point kind of start going down the route of registering as a charity, um, but in the end uh, didn't do that. Uh, maybe right. in part because it was more difficult than expected to raise uh, charitable money. So we yeah. then thought, well, if that's the case, uh, is there as much benefit to doing that? Why have uh, the regulation if you can't have the money? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and of course that might be circular, maybe you've been charitable, maybe people might have been more willing maybe. to give us money, who knows. Maybe. Um yeah. uh, but it didn't quite feel like that at the way. And in the end, uh, I think the, the the thing that really won out was like let's um let's maintain the flexibility. You know, I can always register as a charity down the line if I want to. Yeah. But equally if I wanted to do something more um more innovative, like being somehow, you know, owned by our employees or who knows maybe owned by the people who've been through the program or something sure, like that yeah, yeah. Uh, you know I, those kind of ideas were also always in my head and so I wanted to maintain a, uh, an element of flexibility I suppose. Um, tell me then about about where you are now so you you're 13 years old 12 or 13 years old 13 years old this year um, yeah and right, yeah. Uh, and your turnover is now over a million. Yeah, so we're now um, at kind of 1.3, 1.4 million pound turnover, yeah, across all three yeah. cities. Yeah, right. We, we, we do about, uh, so we run six programs a year, two in each city that we operate in. So yeah. that's, you know, anywhere from 100 to 120 people a year who go through uh, our associate program. Mm -hmm. um, by the end of this year, uh, it's quite a big milestone. We should have reached the 1,000th person coming onto our program, which will be Brilliant. quite a big, a big moment. So we're, we're proud of that. Okay. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, and all the kind of intricacies and complications of running what is actually quite a small organisation, but with maximal complexity in the sense of you know running it across three economies in three languages with three different jurisdictions and tax regimes and all the rest of it. Yeah. 
and uh, you, you make a small profit sometimes, but you essentially you either break even or make a small profit. So that enables you to continue that organic growth. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we we break we break even, or I mean, we have had years where we've made say you know ten percent profit mm -hmm. margin or so. Um, historically, uh, when we went to Paris and Berlin, we had quite a long period of of, of not because uh, you know they they took a while to kind of get up to. Uh, break even themselves, and yeah. not just them break even, but also then contributing to the to the whole organisation and, and uh, to the overheads and so on. Uh, but you know, touch wood, uh, we're just kind of coming out of that phase uh, where we might go into phase of, of generating a little bit of growth capital for ourselves as well. Yeah. Okay. So let's. Um, I'd like to ask a little, a few questions about you now, um, and kind of where where you're from, what your background was. I mean, the, I suppose the. Um, the sort of international or pan-European nature of where you've taken um, on purpose to um, reflects at least your upbringing, doesn't it? Because you you um, uh, you were born not in the UK, although your parents are English. So, to, to tell us about who you are and sure, what yeah. your education was like, what sort of background you had. Yeah, yeah. I, so you're right. I was I was born in Switzerland, in the German-speaking part of Switzerland. Um, kind of in the commuter belt to Zurich. Um, mm. uh, my, as you say, my parents are both English. They, they'd moved out with my father's job uh, a few years before. Um, I was born there, grew up there, went to Swiss schools. Uh, so, you know, speaking uh, German and Swiss German at school. Yeah. Uh, but home was always very much English. You know, we spoke English at home. I, I'd probably say culturally home was quite English as well. Mm. And... Um, and I then, I always say I came back to the UK, although for me it wasn't really back because I never really lived here. Um, but I, I came to the UK when I, when I, did, my, uh, when I did my undergraduate degree. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and that's, so I do have that international flavor in there a little bit, I suppose. Uh, and, and a smattering of language, which, which is quite helpful in the, in the kind of situation we're in. And your upbringing was middle class? Uh, yes, yeah, I probably have to own up to that. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's definitely middle class. Um, uh, my kind of parents uh, and my, you know, kind of aunts and uncles and so, so on. I came, come from a family of kind of teachers and academics. Right. Um, interesting, I think, mo you know, actually on both sides, uh, both my parents had themselves uh, kind of benefited from you know, school scholarships had themselves probably come from, you know, more working class backgrounds, got yeah. scholarships uh, that enabled them to go to um, maybe grammar schools or the equivalents at sure. the time yeah. and then to university and so on. Um, so, yeah, so that that's probably not not an entirely unusual story uh, yeah. for that generation of people. And you then went down the sort of the kind of boffin route yourself, didn't you? I mean, you were you went to Cambridge um, it's, I'm guessing you got a first class degree because you then went on to do a, a master's and a PhD, didn't you, in Cambridge? And you be, essentially you became a cancer research scientist, and you were you were um, working on that on essentially sort of curing the curing people's ills, weren't you, through research? So, so most of that's right. I, I, um, okay. I emphatically didn't get a first at Cambridge. Um, I would have loved to, uh, but I was always kind of the kind of person who, you know, I could put in the hard work to get a two-one, but I wasn't quite right. brilliant enough to get a first. But interestingly, in science, that that uh, that's kind of good enough to get you to be able to do a PhD. Okay. Um, so yeah, and uh, you know, I'd I'd grown up. I think maybe quite. 
probably because of my family background, actually thinking that I wanted to become an academic. Um, yeah. And I, you know, and I am, I, I remain kind of attracted to that kind of world. And, and in some ways, what I do with On Purpose, I, I was always actually attracted to the kind of teaching side of academia yeah. as much as the research side. And there are, of course, there are parallels with, with what I do now. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I went into science, I did chemistry, uh, then, like you say, a PhD in kind of cancer research, although nothing to do with patients. Uh, it was kind of biochemistry, biophysics, yeah. that, that kind of area. Uh, and in many ways, in many ways, actually very much enjoyed that. Um, but a couple of things, I suppose, one was um, I, I was maybe a little disillusioned with the world of academia uh, and maybe had come in with a with a kind of mindset that this was quite a pure world and you know yeah. and all the rest of it of course like anywhere else everyone's fighting for funding <laughs> all that yeah. kind of thing and funding doesn't always get distributed in, in maybe what seems like the most uh, effective or fair ways uh, so the, there was a bit of disappointment there but actually the bigger part for me was i realized that it felt like if i stayed in that kind of world it would probably only use a fairly narrow set of my interests and skills Right. And that I had a kind of much wider skill set uh, that I wanted to use. And that actually maybe some of the other skills I wasn't using were may- maybe ones that I was actually better at than than, yeah. uh, than, than what I used in, in my PhD. Um, so the other the other kind of thing for me then always was, and, and you know, quite where this comes from, who knows, but uh, if it wasn't going to be academia, then I kind of thought, well, in which case it's, it's got to be international development or at least something clearly right. social. Um, yeah. I think probably like a, quite a lot of people of, of that age in their kind of mid late twenties. However, um, I had you know I remember having a very kind of influential conversation with uh, with a friend of my older brother's, hmm. uh, and his brother you know their family also kind of teachers and academics. His brother shock horror had gone and done accountancy, um, right. and uh, but then because of that I actually ended up quite quickly doing very interesting things as it happens also in the international development space. Yeah. And this kind of turned a light on for me, which is, oh, you know, actually, this kind of private sector skills business thing or, or understanding the business world is quite helpful. Um, and maybe I could do that. And that was mixed with, you know, um, a bit of, um, what's the word, a bit of concern around, well, hey, w- w- if I want to go into international development, would I even get a job? Would I even get an internship? Even if I managed to get a job at, say, Oxfam, <laughs> what would the training be like? You know, would I ever get beyond doing an internship? Uh, how would I develop? And I was sufficiently aware, I guess, of people who'd gone into different kinds of organizations and some had had a lot of training and development and, you know, progressed quite quickly. And in other organizations, there was much less of that around that I saw the value of that. Um, and so I went into management consultancy um, uh, and uh, but quite explicitly with this idea of I'm going to acquire some some skills that I can then transfer. And I thought, of course, I'd do it in two to three years. Actually, like many people, I got it somewhat stuck, and it took five. But eventually, I did unstick myself and and make yeah. the jump. Yeah. And experience, as you say, which then sort of plays back into your into your into the experiences of the the people who now you were supporting to to lead their own consultancy careers. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And how about with so the world of science and what sort of biology, biochemistry? That do do you do you miss that? Have you left that behind completely? Um, do you connect with that at all now? Yeah, I'd say I don't connect directly with the kind of um, the kind of cutting edge science of what's going on. However, 
I do connect with it in the sense that I have over the last years become increasingly interested and fascinated by um, the kind of whole topic of, of complexity and systems thinking and how mm. that can apply to how we run organizations and, and by extension how we run the, the economy. And the reason I connect that with science is that, um, you know, my firm kind of belief is that, you know, a lot of our management theory and our economic theory that is the kind of current way of thinking about the world yeah. is actually based in unsound or, or outdated science, much of it from the 19th century. Um, mm. And actually, if you take what is really cutting-edge science and how people really think about the world, then uh, you know that leads you to think about how the world works very differently. And by implication, can help you think very differently about how organizations work and how the economy should work. So just to make that a bit more tangible, um, uh, you know, in kind of classic economic theory and in management theory, you know, we believe and, and, are, and are taught that competition is everything you know competition yeah. drives progress like competition uh, yeah competition makes things makes things happen we should create competition wherever we can markets are the way to do that that's how progress happens and that stems of course from our understanding of of what we think how nature works because after all that's how natural selection works that's what we learned from darwin um you know nature is red and tooth and claw and that provides a certain vindication for us trying to recreate that in our social in our society in our social structures as well um now that is an entirely outdated view of how evolution actually happens <laughs> right if you go to genuinely cutting edge science you know the latest science on how evolution happens if you go and talk to evolutionary bio biologists they will tell you that collaboration is at least as important, if not more important, than competition. Now, not to say that competition is completely beside the point, but you definitely need both. Um, uh, and you know, imagine if we took that seriously in how we ran our organisations, how we mm. ran our economy, how we think about our structures in societies. What difference just that very small thing could do? And that that kind of thinking is actually replicated in lots of different places about lots of different beliefs and assumptions that we have about the economy. Fascinating. So uh, so we should perhaps be reading the collaborative gene rather than the selfish gene. So let's get back to what we've I've sort of jumped to the, uh, you know, what you're doing now. And I started off with, you know, the, your beginnings. But uh, just tell me a little bit about um, your journey as a social entrepreneur then. So when, how did you actually focus in on becoming a social entrepreneur you went from being an academic and said right now I'm going to be a consultant um but the, but then the business of being a consultant obviously useful to you I'm sure fascinating gave you lots of skills um and you you told us about um when you started on purpose you know you 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 felt something was not again quite right with your own life your own career and where that was going so what what turned you into a social entrepreneur and what's that journey been like? Hmm. So when I left consulting, you know, I I was incredibly grateful for the opportunities it afforded me. I'd learned huge amounts in a short amount of time, all these things that people say about the, these kind of jobs, of course. 
Um, I'd also been very lucky that I had actually been able to work on a couple of non-profit projects, one actually with an international development agency. Mm. Uh, and I'd seen kind of, in some ways, a bit up close, um, some of the difficulties of running an organization that is entirely grant dependent. Um, yeah. uh, and having kind of then added that to, you know, this kind of business experience that I I'd accumulated, I'd started coming across the idea of social enterprise as well, you know, which yeah. I mean, had been going for a long time, obviously, but you know, was maybe going through a little bit of a renaissance in, in those days. Mm. And, um, uh, and for one thing, I also noticed that actually, you know, International development. I've never lived in Africa or South America or Southeast Asia or whatever. And, yeah. and uh, whilst I was quite interested in maybe going there for a few years, I didn't think I wanted to live there long term. Um, whereas I realised that actually, if I if I kind of got on, kind of worked on this social enterprise idea, or slightly more generally on how to create a, a more intelligent way of, of running our economy that integrates social, commercial, and environmental ways of working in better ways mm. there was loads of that happening in the uk actually and you know and, and I, i'm much more qualified to try and work on things here in, in in the uk um and so that's where the, so that idea kind of was already there when i when i left uh consulting the other thing was that i'd realized that whilst you know i loved being a consultant and i still actually like that dynamic i still like being an advisor and so on but yeah i yeah. also had a real need to want to kind of not just advise other people on their problems but actually also you know be working on my own problem um, become an entrepreneur <laughs> maybe that's become an entrepreneur yeah, yeah i i guess mm-hmm. i associated it with more with kind of well in a way that's what i had during my phd you know that was very yeah, much yeah, my yeah. thing you know my project uh, i was the mm world's expert in a very 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 tiny little thing but you know that was my <laughs> thing um uh, and i i quite like that dynamic and um, so but i didn't when i left ever think that i would start something up you know i i didn't think of myself as an entrepreneur i would never been one of these people who'd run you know ponzi schemes in kindergarten or whatever like yeah. some people talk about um uh but i did think i'd want to quite i'd quite like to run something and, and yeah. had something up uh, and obviously you know probably something smaller um uh, given kind of where i was at uh so i was looking initially just for places where i could combine social and commercial ways of working i worked in a in a, a comic relief you know a, a large charity yep. but they're pretty commercial actually in how they work in many ways mm. and then i had the opportunity to switch on to a, a social business called red which did a lot of corporate partnerships yeah. raising money as cause related marketing that sort of was that bono's Yes, credit exactly. Yeah. Thing. Found, yeah. Founded by Bono and, and Bobby yeah. Shriver, uh, Amex mm-hmm. credit cards, but also you know Gap t-shirts, um, mm. Armani clothes, and so on and so forth. Um, and then what actually literally gave me the idea? Well, that's two things. One is, as I worked in smaller organisations myself, I started coming across, uh, and with a couple of people who were entrepreneurs, I started coming across more entrepreneurs and yeah. uh, meeting people who had started up organisations. And I started mm-hmm. kind of thinking, well, okay, this is clearly not easy. You know, these people are good, but it's also not impossible. You know, you know, if, if these people can do this, maybe, maybe I could as well. Um, yeah. So there was there was a one side of it was was seeing that and, and realizing that's maybe more possible than I thought. Uh, the other side was obviously have, getting the idea from somewhere and. Um, as I was leaving consulting, I actually helped someone uh, who was putting together a, a business plan with a, a, within an organization with a couple of other organizations, which was essentially a graduate training program for people who wanted to work in charities. Right. Uh, and given what I've told you about my decisions, uh, you know, earlier on, uh, you know, that was actually just quite interesting to me. Um, so I helped them. I interviewed a bunch of people. And one of the 
people I interviewed was a lady who many years later actually came onto our board. Um, mm. And we had this kind of very animated conversation about the need for these, what I call these bilingual people who could under, navigate and understand and operate both in the commercial world and in the social world. And that there were right. too few of those. And that by developing more of those, we would uh, you know, contribute to hopefully bringing about ultimately, although it sounds highfalutin, a better economy. Um, now, and she said to me, you know, rather than a graduate training program for people who want to work in charities, you should create, uh, you should create the program that's going to be the leadership program for the for these types of people. And that idea stuck with me. You know, it seemed to me just that, that kind of more inspiring, more what I really wanted to do than mm. this more graduate program focused on charities. More paradigm shifting. Maybe more paradigm shifting. Yes. Um, interestingly, though, actually. This was before I went to Comic Relief and Red, so I actually mm. went off and did a couple of other things. Uh, but but it was one of those things that kept going around in my head, and I couldn't quite get get rid of it. Uh, mm. And ultimately, I kind of figured, you know, I didn't want to get, you know, twenty years down the line and then wonder what might have been. Um, sure. And so I sat down, wrote the business plan, uh, and then essentially ended up talking to lots of people about it and having coffees. I mean, almost literally every day before and after work asking people for feedback, what did they think about it? And I often say to people, actually, you know, the thing that really made me take the jump in the end and, and quit my job and, 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 and start this up was that I had just talked to so many people that it would, been, it would have been too embarrassing not to at least try. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so uh, I always kind of say, if, if you're unsure about it, that's, that's quite a good forcing device for you. So let's ask you a few questions about leadership now. Um, and I, I'm interested in what challenges, what failures and mistakes you've made, what's your, what are your proudest achievements? So let's start off with perhaps your greatest challenge as a social business leader. What was it? How did you deal with it? Yeah, I think my kind of greatest challenge, and it's an ongoing one, um, is around, you know, that continuous balance between providing direction, providing structure, providing constraints and guidance or whatever it might be, you know, mm. saying this is where we're going, this is what we want to do. And uh, on the flip side, um, empowering people in your team to kind of make that happen and not yeah. over managing them or micromanaging them or whatever it might be. And um, it sounds obvious and it's a kind of classic one, but, you know, it is genuinely the one that, that I find I have to kind of continuously work on and I've had different versions of it you know I think in the early days we were a small team we were all in London it kind of happens naturally you don't have to think about it too much yeah uh, interestingly when you then kind of go to more than one city and people are remote and you don't see them as much suddenly it becomes a bit more complicated uh, mm -hmm. I've then also had periods where I've been a bit more remote from the business because mm -hmm. uh, we've had an MD in place who's done a lot of the day-to-day -day. Uh, and that's been in many ways amazing because it's freed me up to kind of not be so involved in the day-to-day -day, but that then also has especially on this kind of balance interesting consequences you know because you you're uh some of that kind of maybe tacit guidance that might otherwise happen yes. just through those kind of regular conversations you're having with people suddenly isn't there and then you know you, you kind of look away for a couple of months and then suddenly some stuff has happened which you weren't aware was going to happen yeah. or whatever it might be uh so i'd say for me very much that striking that balance is the the kind of biggest challenge that, that I have and that I have to continuously work on. Okay. 
How about failures or mistakes? Mm. Plen- plenty of those. Um, <laughs> one specific one that, that, that sticks in my mind was from fairly early on, and, and um, it was an odd one in a way, uh, but it also kind of seemed so avoidable, which was that um, this was about year two or three, roughly, mm. and um, we, uh, there was two of us, uh, running the organization and we I think we're just transitioning into running two cohorts a year uh, and that was massively busy I mean we were completely uh, run into the ground trying to manage two programs with just two people uh, but you know we'd heads down we're delivering delivering made it happen and kind of got to the end of the year and then kind of almost kind of you raised your head and oh my goodness we've actually made quite a big profit this year. <laughs> actually, financially, we're quite successful. Mm. Uh, and you might think, well, that's a good thing. But of course, actually, the real failure was not to have lifted my head or our heads above the parapet sooner and gone, oh, we're massively busy. Actually, financially, this is looking quite good. Let's bring in the next person sooner. Uh, I think I probably still had a kind of... Um, an idea that you know we needed to earn the money first before we investing. Whereas actually, in that situation, I could have probably foreseen, certainly by six months, maybe even nine months, that we were going to have enough money, and I could have hired someone, the next person, which you know we did then hire, but but we could have hired them quite a bit earlier, yeah. uh, and probably avoided uh, myself and my colleague at that point, um, you know, having really quite a stressful time. Yeah, uh, yeah, tiring yourselves out, but also being in a situation as you say where you, you forget to do both the operational stuff and the strategic stuff at the same time because mm. you know you have to deliver um, and so strategy sort of has to has to pause exactly yeah. and just that that kind of you know not getting too sucked into the operations and making sure you kind of surface every now and again and go actually you know what what's the longer term outlook here and mm. you know, being able to keep that it's another balance I suppose isn't it yeah What's been your proudest moment then? Your proudest achievement? Yeah, this this is an interesting one. Um, I was thinking about this a little bit the the other day, and um, I mean, this is actually not a single achievement, but it's it's it was always one of my very proud moments. So we we take all our associates during the program on a, on a kind of a weekend away, a development weekend, uh, and one of the um, one of the things that we do during this weekend is actually uh, uh, an exercise of essentially just quite deep sharing, you know, mm. um, of, of getting to know each other um, at another a level of depth. And um, and the stories that that brings forth and the dynamics that that creates and the, the kind of human connections or the human relationship that that deepens and fosters for whatever reason, actually, when I think about what am I really proud about, that is one of the things that, that is really meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, ironically, in the last uh, maybe five or six years, I haven't gone along to these uh, development weekends anymore. It's, it's, uh, maybe I, I should, go, should go back and visit some, some more of them again. But, um, but it's that kind of realization that we are, you know, everyone on the program, and not just on our program, but everyone in general, you know, we are all actually special human beings with incredible stories to tell. And if we take that time to get to know each other, you know, we can appreciate uh, that in each other. Uh, and that creates amazing relationships, amazing connections. And, you know, 
interestingly, in systems change, a lot is about relationships and connections, as you know, mm. as well. So. Okay. Let's talk about good leadership itself. And there are lots of you know, leadership. Good leadership can mean lots of different things. There are lots of qualities that good leaders should have. Is there one particular quality that you might point to, uh, whether mm. it's a formula or a trait or whatever, that you think is important to good leadership? Mm. Interesting, actually, for someone who runs a leadership program, I, I, I often shy away from this from this question a little bit, um, and. Uh, and, and not just uh, quite deliberately so. And I think it's also part of our program that we don't subscribe to a particular formula of leadership or a particular approach or ideology. We, we, we take a kind of fairly agnostic view. We introduce people with different ideas of leadership uh, and hopefully help people make up their own minds which one works for them. Or mm. maybe that different ones work in different situations, which I think is probably the case. Um, however, if you, if you were to press me on kind of one, uh, and this is one that, um, again, maybe comes through this kind of engagement with uh, systems change for me uh, increasingly and transformative systems change of, re of really wanting to help bring about a genuinely different economy, a genuinely different way of thinking about organizations, mm. then I'd say it's it's that ability to be able to envisage a future that is very different, that, that is rooted in a different set of values, in a different set of assumptions, in a different set of beliefs about how the world works, how the economy works, how organizations work. Hmm. Not that any one leader can paint that in detail as to what that looks like, you know, because in a complex system, we can't anticipate that, we can't plan for that, we don't know. But hmm. I think you do need to have a sense of what that is and what will take us towards that goal as opposed to what will take us away from that goal. Right. So increasingly what, I, what I'm keen on developing myself but also helping people in our programs engage with is, you know, what is that kind of idea, what is that vision for you of, of where you're going towards but also where we collectively as a society, as organisations and so on should be going towards because ultimately, I think if we have that idea in our minds, it's very difficult to unseat. You know, that's mm. an attractive, positive, better place. It's quite difficult to unseat. Uh, mm. And if you have that stuck in your mind, actually, ultimately, whatever you end up doing, you will hopefully be kind of doing things that are collectively trying to bring us towards that place uh, yep. rather than away from it. And so let's get back to the you over the next few years then so what what's the next big development do you think for you and for your social enterprise over the next few years yeah well you know this this idea of uh the, the the next kind of the period that we're in at the moment um is really around making sure that our program is doing the best possible job of of developing people who will go on and help transform the economy and uh, one of the things more practically we're trying to do about that is, is, is bring more systems change, more systems practice into that and, mm. and make it more central to the program, not just a kind of tagged on, um, uh, you know, a tagged on unit, as it were, yeah. uh, uh, but, but, you know, kind of make it more of the, of the central narrative of the program. 
um, and, and, and becoming a bit more explicit and deliberate about how it is that we, we create that transformation in the people who will then go and hopefully create transformation organizations and the economy. Uh, and, you know, I think uh, creating that clarity around how, that, how we do that in our current program uh, will then actually allow us to kind of uh, hopefully you know, almost kind of bottle that and take that to lots of different places. So whether that's then uh, finding more cities to export ourselves to, but if we have that clarity, I think that kind of job of finding partners, funders, investors to do that will be easier. Yeah. Or whether it's about, you know, we never have any lack of thinking about, oh, we could run a program for this audience or in this format, etc., yeah. etc. Et and we're always kind of wondering, you know, oh, is that, is that what we should be doing? Is that is that an on-purpose program or is that not what we should be doing? But actually, if we have that essence, you know, kind of bottled for ourselves, mm. then I'm almost actually pretty agnostic as to who we do that for uh, or what format we do that in because we'll know that it's an on-purpose program by the impact and by the change that it's, it's helping to achieve in people. Mm. So there's this kind of hopefully short period of... of, of becoming really clear about how we make that really transformative change happen. And then I see a kind of period of, 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 of experimentation and expansion and uh, you know, applying that essence to lots of different places and, and seeing, you know, uh, not to be too flippant about it, but kind of seeing what sticks. Fantastic. I look forward to watching it happen. So, right, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to throw a series of quick-fire questions to you now when I'm going to ask you sometimes probably quite cruelly to choose between one one thing and another. I'm, I'm really bad at this, by the way. I hate making okay. these kind of choices, but <laughs> I'll do my best to Good. wriggle out of as many as I can. <laughs> okay. Right. <laughs> Business or charity? Business, with caveats, but yes. Philanthropy or investment? Investment if it has the right uh, mentality behind it. Purpose or I normally ask purpose or profit, but I'm not going to ask that. I'm going to ask a purpose or equity. Oh, um, purpose. People or planet? They're inseparable. Tea or coffee? Tea. Chocolate or cheese? Oh, tough one. Uh, maybe cheese actually. Yeah. Salt or pepper? Pepper. Hot dog or halloumi? Halloumi. Wisdom or courage? Wisdom. Thinking or doing? Ah. Uh, I've got to be honest, and it'll probably thinking, although I'd like to say I was a doer, but yeah, I'm, I'm quite a thinker, <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm honest. Exploring the past or shaping the future? Shaping the future. Changing careers or changing paradigms? Changing paradigms. Novel or Netflix? Oh, I'd like to say novel, but if I'm honest, it's not Netflix. I don't have a subscription, but it ends up being TV. Yeah. Okay. iPad or moleskin? iPad or some equivalent, yeah. Science or the arts? Uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say again, actually, they're, they're not antithetical. <laughs> okay. Researchers or consultants? Uh, oh. Uh, not too worried, but let's say consultants. Florence Nightingale or Francis Crick? Florence Nightingale. Muhammad Yunus or Charles Handy? Charles Handy, only because I've met him. Yeah. Not only because I've met him, but because I've met him. 
Stephen Hawking or Alan Turing? Ooh, Alan Turing for... Well, they both have adversity, don't they? It's interesting. But I'll go for Alan Turing. Greta Thunberg or Malala Yousafzai? Greta Thunberg. Team day out or one-to-one? One-to-one. City break or safari? Safari. Harvard Business Review or A Tale of Two Cities? A Tale of Two Cities. Curing cancer or curing the economy? Uh, Curing the economy these days. (laughs) Music or mountains? Oh, tough. Oh, impossible, but I'll say mountains. Bach or Mozart? Bach. Innovation or legislation? Innovation. Evolution or revolution? Evolution. Tom Rippin from On Purpose, thank you very much indeed. That was fascinating. Thank you so much, Tim, for having me. I've really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Good Leaders with me, Tim West, founding editor of Pioneers Post. If you like what you hear or have comments, questions or suggestions for guests, then please get in touch via Twitter at Pioneers Post or email goodleaders at pioneerspost.com.